Well, now, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Acts chapter 10 as we continue through our sermon series there. We are going to be reading a little more about Cornelius. We started last week, and Pastor Tim is going to continue. But before we get there, Rachel, if you want to come on up, and we are going to read verses 9 through 23. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house, and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Rachel, for reading that, and I hope all of you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you have them open, and particularly as well, if you're watching this at home, uh, we would ask that you get your Bibles open as well, and you want to be in the Word of God, and and really you want to be in the Word of God always, but particularly this sermon, because here's what we're going to do. There are some sermons that you could, you know, kind of sip. They're easy going down the soul sermons, and You know, they're encouraging, and they're a little bit more on the surface, and then there are some sermons that you're going to need a knife, you're going to need a fork with. This is one of the ones that probably, if you try sipping this, you're going to choke on some chunks. I don't know, that sounded really horrible, didn't it? (laughs) Whenever I don't preach for a week, I get a little odd. So let's get your Bibles open. We're going to really work through this and dive a little bit deeper and try to get into this so that it gets into us. And here's what I want you to do, and I have to do this as well. I'm going to actually pause for a minute because when you are at church and you hear a sermon, there is the responsibility, of course, of the one preaching, but there is the responsibility of the one who is hearing as well, right? Doesn't the Bible say be not just hearers, but doers of the word of God? So there's a responsibility that we do the word of God. So what I'm going to ask you to do really quickly is just pause, and if you're comfortable, just close your eyes and pray. If you're not comfortable doing that, then just speak to the Lord. And just ask, Father, would you lay bare my heart? 
and show me what it is that is in this sermon that was particularly meant for me. Because I think you have to come to church with expectations. I know I have to. You have to, right? If you don't come to church with expectations, it's never going to fail you, <laughs> number one. But number two, you're really not going to get much out of it. So what are your expectations? Are you expecting that God's going to speak to you? Do you know we're going to see that at least twice in this passage? That God surely will speak to you. So I'm going to give you about 30 seconds, and I'm going to pray as well for me, because I don't know if you know this, but when preachers are preaching, they actually think. And so there's sometimes the Lord is zinging my heart even while I'm preaching. So I need to pray for this as well with all humility the same way as you do. So let's take 30 seconds, and whatever posture you're comfortable with, just invite the Lord to speak to you. Father, you love to speak, and your words have power. Your words have so much power that they are unopposable. So, Lord, I pray that you would have your way with every one of us, whether this is the church that we call home or whether we are visiting, whether we have stumbled on this online. Lord, I pray that you would have your way and speak in an unopposably sovereign manner. And Lord, that we would hear. And that you would lay bare what needs to be laid bare. Lord, that you would encourage what needs to be encouraged. And that you would embolden what needs to be emboldened. All for your glory. All to make us more like Jesus. All that your redemptive community would live in this world powerfully and witness to the end of the earth of Jesus. And it's in his powerful name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I hope you have your Bibles open. We are, of course, in Acts chapter 10. And what Pastor Kyle <clears throat> started last week and did so well with, with Cornelius the Centurion, we're actually picking up. This is actually a mini-series. This is part two of three. And so we'll, Lord willing, finish this next week with Cornelius and his friends and his families. But let me take you, here's what I'm going to try to do in this message. I'm going to actually try to get you so deeply into the Jewish world that this comes alive, this passage. It comes alive in your heart. So I need you to really take out your fork, take out your knife, and I want you to really focus as much as you can as if you are the one in this story. As if you're in Jerusalem at some point and you're familiar with the temple. The temple of God occupied over 35 acres. The whole footprint of the temple, the whole precinct, 35 acres. And it had a five-foot wall that separated the outer precinct from the actual temple house. 
And that five-foot wall was a warning to Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish people. And it had warnings, and it was chiseled onto blocks of stone next to all of the various gates that made its way through that five-foot wall. And it was chiseled in Latin and Greek, and I'm going to translate it in English for you. So if you had gone to the temple in first century Jerusalem... And you went into that precinct, over 35 acres big, you would have seen on this five-foot wall at various places this inscription, quote, no foreigner may enter the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall be put blame for the death which will ensue. It was a warning that you will be killed if you're a Gentile and you go beyond that wall. And those warnings, friends, listen, those warnings were not of God. He did not command that those inscriptions be put on there. They were put there by zealous men who lost sight of the mission of Israel. Do you not remember Jesus? When he cleaned out the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry, the second time at the end of his ministry, the week of his passion, he said, did he not, that my father's house will be a house of prayer, don't forget the rest of it, for the nations. See, Jew and Gentile were invited to come and be near the God who loves all people, regardless of your ethnic group. Paul, the apostle, will later return and refer to that barrier that I told you about, that five-foot wall. He writes this in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, Gentiles who once were far off, they couldn't go beyond that wall, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made Jew and Gentile one and broken down in his flesh. Now listen to this, the dividing wall of hostility. You see that wall, that five-foot wall, had a nickname. It was called the dividing wall of hostility. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is eradicating any barrier that would keep any non-Jewish person from God. But you know, historians will tell us that at no time in history was the world more divided than in the first century. That's really hard to believe because if you're paying attention, we are fast approaching that. You know we parallel Rome. We parallel the history of Rome in America. There are divisions, or they were rather in first century, there were, there were divisions between the wealthy and the poor, slave and free, husbands and wives, fathers and children, educated and uneducated, Jews and Gentiles. There were seemingly unbridgeable Divisions between every social group on earth. That's the first century. But in every case, in all of history since Christ was crucified and rose again, in every case, the life of Christ and his people will overcome those divisions. And what we will see today was a tearing down of the barrier between Jew and Gentile. Now I want you to think for a second. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. The Bible puts every human being in one of those two categories. 
You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. And if you're a Gentile right now listening to this, I mean, not really just a Gentile right now, but if you're a Gentile by birth and you're listening to this and you're, you're hearing this, listen, I want to tell you something. What we're about to study was the moment that we were included in the covenantal promises of God. This is when it all happened. Right? Peter has the keys, Jesus said. He has the keys to let who in? Well, he let the Samaritans in. He's letting the Gentiles in. That's really what that means. So here we go. We've got a passage in Scripture that is telling us of the moment that Gentiles are allowed into the covenantal promises of God. And that is more amazingly monumental than you might realize. Let me tell you why. Gentiles for centuries had treated the Jewish people with scorn, cruelty, mocking them. Why? Because they had a practice of circumcision. There was no other nation that did that. They had a Sabbath day rest. Listen, there was no other nation in the ancient world that took one day off a week. Do you realize? That was unique for God's people. But they were ridiculed for it. They were ridiculed for their worship of an invisible God, all of their laws that they had to obey. But the Jewish attitude towards Gentiles was poor as well. They saw them as spiritually unclean people, meaning, meaning they looked at Gentiles as living, walking, spiritual contagions of filth. Rabbis commanded that no Jew should ever teach a Gentile the law of God. That was actually a rabbinical command. They even, some of them, taught that God created Gentiles so that there would be fuel for the fires of hell to burn. Can you imagine that? That's what some of the Jewish religious leaders taught. In fact, to touch a Gentile, say you go to the market and you jostle against a Gentile, then that meant that you became spiritually contaminated. Your soul was now dirty. It left you unclean before God. It barred you from the presence of God and his peace. That's what they taught. None of this is biblical. This is where Judaism had gotten to. This is what Peter grew up in. This is what he was taught all of his life. Did you know that Jewish parents would hold a wedding and a funeral the same day if their daughter was marrying a Gentile? They had strict Jews that taught that no one should ever help a Gentile woman give birth. It was a terrible thing, they believed, in God's eyes, to aid in bringing another Gentile into this world. In fact, when they came out of Gentile land and literally crossed the boundaries of Israel, they would take their sandals off and they would clap them together to get all of the Gentile dirt and dust off because they believed that even the Gentile soil was contaminated and spiritually unclean and it did not degrade it would sit and defile the land of God friends this was not God's view 
For God had said in Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you, Israel, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. It was always God's plan that Jews and Gentiles would be saved. But by the first century, Israel had drifted far from this divine mission. And much of Acts is devoted to the recovery of that mission. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in overcoming spiritual blindness. If the gospel of Jesus Christ was to go to the end of the earth, friends, listen, the church must love all. And it would begin in earnest with Peter. Now that was introduction. You ready? Here we go. Verse 9 of Acts chapter 10. Let's read it together. Follow along as I read. The next day... As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Now their day started at six in the morning. So this is noon. Peter is in the seacoast town of Joppa, beautiful, right along the Mediterranean coast, blue waters. He didn't know he was about to meet a devout Roman centurion, a Gentile. A Gentile who, by the way, listen, was in prayer when an angel of God appeared to him and told him to go get Peter in Joppa. Cornelius is the man that I'm talking about, the centurion. He's in Caesarea. He sent for Peter. That's what the angel told him to do. And he sends three people to ask Peter to come to Caesarea. Joppa and Caesarea are 30 miles apart. That's a two-day journey, a little under a two-day journey. They always, they always had a walk. So we've got the three people from Cornelius heading to Joppa. They're drawing near to Joppa. It is noon. Peter's up on the roof of Simon the Tanner's home praying. Why would he be on the roof? I mean, why does anybody go on the roof? Maybe to jump off and do flips in the snow. That's why manly men go on the roof. Maybe not manly men. Roofs were always flat. Did you know that? Back in first century. They were used for sleeping during the hot months. To catch some of that breeze coming off of the Mediterranean. They would eat their meals up there. Can you imagine? No air condition. Hardly any ventilation in their homes. You don't want to eat your meals in the summer inside the house. You go up to the roof, and there's outdoors or outside staircases along the side of the wall and would get you up there. That's where they would go for meals, but it's also where they would go to pray. So Peter went up on the roof to pray while he's waiting for lunch. And look what happens in verse 11. He fell into a trance. And saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Now time out for a second. That word sheet was the same word for a ship's sail. So guess what liberal theologians do? They always do stuff like this. Drives me crazy. Peter had sunstroke, and he was hungry, and he was dehydrated. And he happened to be looking out and seeing all these ships on the Mediterranean. And that was why he had this vision. Listen, that's not true. God gave him this vision. So pick it back up again. A great sheet descending. Looked like a ship's sail. 
being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, if you have a red letter edition Bible, that's in red. That means Jesus is speaking. This is the voice of Jesus Christ. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So God gives him a vision. Look at verse 17 and 19. It's a vision. It's not a dream. He's not in a stupor. He's having a vision. And God is the author of this vision. And it was functioning as spiritual surgery in Peter's heart. Now, let's pause for a second to get some help for our own hearts. I want you to think for a moment. When's the last time God showed you something in your heart that you did not know was there? Has that ever happened? When's the last time that God showed you something in your heart that you had no idea was there? And it was rather painful to see it. It was rather humbling, maybe even humiliating. And when that happens, brother and sister, that is surgery. And I want to tell you, go make your visits to the great physician and ask him to check you. Take the x-rays of your heart. He'll do it through the word of God. And get in prayer and invite God. Would you show me if there's anything in my life, anything in my heart that is not pleasing to you? Help me see it so that I can confess it, repent from it, and worship you. Now let me give you some comfort. God will never, ever perform surgery on your soul without the anesthesia of grace. Do you know that? Do you believe that? If he's going to rip you open, and he's going to do some painful work of excising sin and habits and, and unbelief in there, then he's going to give you the anesthesia of grace. You're going to be okay, and it's going to be a beautiful result because you will be better spiritually then than you were before. See, God's about to do surgery on Peter's heart. Because, friends, I want to tell you something. There are in each of us, me included, attitudes and thoughts and beliefs that are contrary to the character of Jesus. Please, please, please do not make the mistake that some people do and deny that truth. There are actually people that believe that they are morally perfected. I've talked to some. You're not morally perfected. I'm not morally perfected. God is ongoingly doing works of surgery on our heart to transform us to be more like Jesus. There are attitudes and thoughts and beliefs. Friends, they are so deep down, you are not aware of them until God reveals them to you. Same with me. You do know Proverbs 20, verse 5, right? A wise friend goes down deep in the heart and brings up your motives that you could not see. That's the power of a wise friend. And the deeper you go in your heart, the darker things get, just like in the ocean. You cannot see what lurks in the depths. God must bring them up. Peter clearly proves this. 
For unknowingly, listen, in his heart, he does not even know it's there, our favoritism, prejudice, lifelong error taught him in his religious upbringing. Now look at that sheet again. Ready? Look at it again in verse 13, if you would. It's filled with all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. What on earth does this mean? You know, when God created life on earth, he told Adam and Eve that all the fruit and all the vegetables were theirs to eat and enjoy, but he did not give animals to them as food, not until he flooded the earth. After the flood, God said to Noah that fruit and vegetables and now animals are good for them to eat. But when God redeemed Israel, when he took them and rescued them out of their slavery in Egypt, and he led them through that journeying, wandering 40 years into the promised land, he gave them the law. And in the law of God, God began to restrict what animals they should eat. Here's what it says in Leviticus 20. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean. And the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls. Which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now why did he do this? There's a lot of people that believe this was primarily for physical health. I'm telling you it wasn't. That's not primarily why God did it. It wasn't for physical health. It was for moral health. You see, God was distinguishing between clean and unclean animals. He was showing that he is holy. He is utterly distinct from all creation. And his people are to be holy. They're to be different from the nations that surrounded them. They would eat anything and everything. So you've got all these kosher food laws, and Israel, by keeping them, would show the world that the God who sets his people apart from the world is the God who wants a holy people. And as a result of their compliance, social life with the Gentiles was nearly impossible. For the Jews, as, as nearly as all social life, revolves around eating together. They found it impossible to eat and fellowship with Gentile people. But look at verse 14. Jesus said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord... For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. You see, Peter and all of Israel, I want you to hear this. This is actually fairly pivotal in this message, what I'm about to tell you. Peter and all of Israel believed that the keeping of the dietary laws made them superior over the Gentiles and made them righteous in God's sight. See, but keeping the law will never make you righteous. The only way to be righteous or made right with God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Keeping any of the law will never make you righteous, but they believed that it would, and they believed in doing that it put them above and superior over the Gentile people. It put three problems in their hearts. I wonder if these three problems are in our hearts. 
First, Israel began to believe they were intrinsically superior to the Gentiles. You know what they called Gentile people? They called them dogs. There's a Yiddish word for it, goyim. They called them dogs. We have dietary laws. You don't. We are superior. We are righteous. God loves us. God favors us. God does not favor you. Now, Christian, this can lurk so deep that my words will never bring it out of your heart. God's words can. Do you realize we can feel that way? We can believe that way? We can act that way with an attitude towards other people different than us? And it can be so deep down, you would vigorously deny it's ever there until God unzips your soul and shows you, and you find it absolutely terrifyingly shocking. How could that have been there all these years? I never saw it. Second, they began to believe, Israel did, that holiness could be gained by eating the right foods. And third, they began to pridefully believe that they alone could be the people of God. Gentiles were not invited into the covenant. So Jesus shows Peter that one of the distinctives he thought between Jews and Gentiles was now abolished. These dietary differences. It was threatening his entire worldview. Jews were not better than Gentiles. And Christian, you and I are not better than any other ethnic person. We're not. In short, the vision really was not much about food at all. It was about the ethnic prejudice in Peter's heart. Now, it's funny because this is the third, I think maybe fourth time, fourth time that I've had to talk about prejudice because I'm enslaved to the scriptures. And this is the third or fourth time that the book of Acts has now come into prejudice and started dealing with it. And you know what? Every single time, listen, every time I've preached on prejudice, I get somebody angry at me. It's amazing. The things that we deny most vigorously are often most deeply in our hearts. The things that we deny most vigorously are often the things most deeply in our hearts. We need to examine them. We need to invite the Lord. Look into my heart and see, is there anything in here that's not pleasing to you? So Jesus corrects a very protesting Peter. Peter's protesting. Look at verse 15. What God has made clean, Jesus says, do not call common. Now, here's the interesting thing. Do you realize that Jesus declared all foods clean about three years previous to this point? Do you remember from Mark chapter 7 where he said, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And then he said this, Thus he declared all foods clean. I think that's in red. No. Thus he declared, Mark writes that. Thus he declared all foods clean. So he already abolished these dietary laws almost three years previous. 
And they would be fully abolished in him. When he died on that cross, the law was abolished. abolished. The written law, the civil and the ceremonial was abolished. It met its end in him. He fulfilled the law. It is not sin to eat these animals. But a lifetime of false belief can be very slow to change. Look at verse 17. Peter was left inwardly perplexed. He was absolutely stunned, confused. He didn't know what to make of this vision because the vision hammered into his heart. And Jesus repeated it three times. And now the Spirit of God's going to actually speak to him. You got the three men from Cornelius. They arrived, verse 17. And before Peter would go down from that roof, the Spirit, verse 19, said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them to you. I don't know if Peter would have gone if not the Spirit speaking to him. That's how deep this was for Peter. He needed a vision repeated three times. He needed the voice of Jesus and he needed a personal testimony and a command from the Spirit of God. But if you were a Jew, friend, and you grew up in first century, it would have been just as difficult for you and would have been just as difficult for me. For Jewish people did not go into Gentile homes. And only rarely would they allow Gentiles to come into theirs. They tried to practice hospitality, but it was so difficult for them. But they would certainly never eat food prepared by the unclean hands of a Gentile. You see, they believed this and they were taught this, that whenever a Gentile touched, whatever a Gentile touched became morally unclean and that contagion could spread. So the object was either burned or cleansed. If a Gentile had to stay in their home and they had to lay on these sheets, they would burn those sheets or they would take them and have them purified ritually. See, when it came to food, if, if it had become unclean by a Gentile, let me just put it in this way. If you went to a market and you bought some food from a Gentile vendor, do you know what the Jewish people taught? They taught that there was a demon called Shipta. And that demon inhabited that food, rested on that food. And when you brought that food home, that demon, was its speciality was to come into your mouth and down into your heart, down into your body, and contaminate your whole body. That's why they developed all of these ridiculously specific purification rituals with water that was set apart for one purpose. And servants had to wash it on their hands, and then they would clean their palms, and they wash it off again. This is all developed to be able to make them morally clean if they touched a Gentile. But Peter invited them in to be his guests. Verse 23, his heart was already changing. And the next day they set out for Caesarea. And I want you to take note of three things. First, Peter was no longer his formerly proud self, but now a more humble disciple of Jesus. Now, I want to bring out something before I go on in this. This is probably the second most important thing I'm going to tell you in this message. What was Cornelius doing when God spoke to him? 
when he sent an angel to him. What was Peter doing when he had the vision? Both of them were praying. And again, I want to ask you, and you should be asking me, how is your prayer life, brother and sister? And if you're going to tell me that you don't really hear from God, that God doesn't seem to speak to you, I'm always going to tell you one of two things. You're not in prayer and you're not in the Word. But don't make the mistake that prayer is where we talk to God and the Word of God is where He talks to us. You cannot demarcate the activity of God in nice, neat little compartments. No, prayer, God talks to your soul. Prayer, God speaks. God doesn't just listen. I told you at the beginning of this message, God loves to speak. And his words give life. Not only to the unsaved and the spiritually lost, they give life and increasing life to the people of God. Peter was praying. Cornelius was praying. And what was God doing? He was making both of them more humble and less proud. Look at the text. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. You know what? I bet in the old days, Peter kind of would have liked that. I remember 10, maybe 12 years ago. I don't know what happened to me. I was, I was a little bit younger of a preacher. When I remember coming into the sanctuary because I was out in the lobby, out in the foyer, working with people, meeting people. I came in and Eyes all followed me as I went down front, and I thought right then, this is toxic. This cannot be allowed to get in here. I've got to kill that now. God was doing that for Peter. Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. You see, if a Gentile expressed interest in Judaism, the religion of the Jews... And he attended worship in a synagogue, houses of prayer. He would have to sit in the back as an observer. He was not allowed to participate. The best thing I could tell you is this. If we were still like that today, then all the Gentiles would have to go up in the balcony and all the Jewish people would be down on the floor. If he wanted to be accepted socially by the Jews, into social life with the Jews, then he'd have to get circumcised. Devout Jews believed that God didn't save Gentiles unless they spiritually became Jews first. And the only way to do that is through circumcision. But gone is the arrogance. Gone is the petulant, reactive Peter. He's been transformed by the power of Jesus. This is the gospel. And it will do in you, and it is doing in you and me, just what it did in Peter, who had gotten the lesson of the vision. And it humbled his heart, and it was beginning to rid him of favoritism. Not completely. Go to Galatians 2, and you will read. He still struggled a little bit. God still had work to do. But there is no ability to take down a dividing wall of hostility in your heart without Christ wrought humility. But second, Cornelius had invited all he loved to hear the gospel taught. All that he loved, he invited them to hear the gospel from Peter. Look at verse 24. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. 
Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. Verse 33, now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Friends, this is what it's about. It's been absolutely thrilling for people to be coming up to us pastors and board members saying, listen, I've been sending these sermon links to my father or my sister or my brother or my friends. I've been bringing the church. They're going to be here next week. And they need to listen to these messages and worship with our church. That's absolutely thrilling. That's what it's about. We are witnesses of Jesus, and we take the first step toward the spiritually lost, and we invite them to hear. So friends, invite, share your story of salvation, ask them to come to church, take responsibility for their hearing of the gospel. The third and final, and this is this other major point I want to stress, the ground is absolutely level at the cross. The ground is absolutely level at the foot of the cross. And he said to them, verse 28, Peter did, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Friends, did you know that there were three kinds of Gentiles to the Jewish mind? Three kinds. One was the plain, ordinary Gentile that a Jew would avoid at every possible cost. Another one, the second one, was a little bit better on the scale, which was a God-fearer. That's the second class of Gentile. They believed in the Hebrew ethics, but they'd never been circumcised. They weren't, they weren't a proselyte. They weren't included in the promises of Judas, Judaism, rather, but they're on their way. So the first one's the ordinary Gentile. The second one's a God-fearing Gentile. That's Cornelius, verse 22. But Cornelius wasn't yet the third one. The third level of Gentile was the proselyte who had come into Judaism and was circumcised and baptized and considered to be a Jew in the spiritual sense. Ethnically a Gentile, spiritually a Jew. That's the highest Gentile to a Jewish mind. But all of that was Peter's old way of thinking, and he was changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which tells us that God loves everyone. Whether a person is a Jew or a Gentile, whether they're black or white, American or Asian, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And now Peter understood, verse 34, that God shows no partiality. None. Jews were not superior to Gentiles, and Gentiles were not superior to the Jews. In other words, there is no one who is more deserving of God's grace or less deserving than you. Now, I'm going to wind this down to a close, but we've got to bring some sort of application to our hearts. Do you remember we asked 
God, at the beginning of this, Lord, if there's anything in my heart, would you unzip it and show it to me? Because I can't see it if you don't show it. And I reminded you that when God shows something in you that's not pleasing to him, there's only three right responses. You confess it, you repent of it, and you worship the God who has no partiality. So the application is this. What did you just hear in that sermon that God began to make you a little bit uncomfortable began to point something out in you that you never saw before. If he didn't, I always tell people, then praise God. Because by his grace, he's already been doing that work. But if he did begin to show you something, friends, do not leave with that intact in your heart, undealt with. Confess, repent, and worship. And tonight... Confess and repent and worship, and tomorrow confess and repent and worship, and every day this week and next week and next month and next year, and make it a lifestyle. You confess, you repent, and you worship, because it's by the blood of Jesus that you are saved. But that salvation is still working, and he is making you more like his son. That's what the Father's doing. He's doing it by the Spirit of God, and he's making you into the Son of God's character so that you resemble the one whose name you took as a Christian. Amen? Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for your ongoing work in our lives, Lord, that you do not give up, that you do not stop working in us ever. And Lord, I am so thankful that, Lord, you neither judge us. Lord, you, your judging was done on the cross. You judged your son in our place. So Romans 8, 1 truly is said of the Christian that there is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But Lord, you do work. You do scour and you do unzip our hearts and you do show and you do do surgery and you do give us anesthesia of grace so that we could become more like Jesus and love like you. Father, if there's anybody that we're not loving, if there's anybody that we've got a grudge against or bitterness toward or a group of people that we just don't like, Lord, would you change us from the inside out? Lord, would you do that work? So that as we witness of Jesus Christ to the end of the earth, Lord, that all people of every language, every people group, every ethnicity, whether they are Caucasian or black or Asian, whether they are rich or poor, white collar, blue collar, blue collar, Lord, just help us bridge these divides in love. And there's no better way to love than to tell them about Jesus Christ, who died on that cross and was risen again, Lord, that we might have life. Lord, I believe you're working in us, and sometimes that's painful. But Lord, I pray that we would learn a lifestyle of confessing, repenting, and worshiping. And as we go back into this song, Lord, I pray that our hearts, Lord, would now be in sync with our lips, and that we would raise up our Lord and Savior who loves us so much. In Jesus' name.